This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Good afternoon. My name is Sue Saxon and I'm a creative producer here at the Australian Museum. I'd like to welcome you to the museum and acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we stand, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and those to come in the future. And welcome to you all on this wonderful first adventure in the Australian Museum Lunchtime Lecture Series, Australians Shaping the Nation. Over six fascinating Tuesdays, we'll hear from inspiring, iconic Australians who feature in the 200 Treasures of the Australian Museum exhibition in our award-winning Westpac Long Gallery. I hope you'll take the opportunity to explore the riches of this stimulating exhibition each time you visit. To introduce our very special guest today, Ita Buttrose, please welcome Kim McKay, Director and CEO of the Australian Museum and one of the speakers in this series. Kim. Thank you so much, Sue, and I should thank Sue for all the work she's put in to organise this wonderful lecture series. And thank you to all of you for coming today and being part of the series, because I know it's going to be uh, uplifting and inspiring on so many levels. I also want to thank Ross Steele, who's a great supporter of the museum, who came to me and said, you know, Kim, I think you should do some lunchtime lecture series. Uh, we do them at night here and they are always sold out and we have always an array of amazing people. But uh, we hadn't tried it out at lunchtime, so thank you for being part of that first group. I too would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're gathered on today. And I do that because the Australian Museum is the custodian of one of the most significant Indigenous collections in the nation and uh, some of which is housed here on site and some of which is housed up at uh, Castle Hill at the Museum's Discovery Centre, our off-site storage facility. And uh, as Sue mentioned, we have many inspiring Aboriginal leaders here at the museum and many young people who are really forging new pathways there and so I pay my respects to Elders past, present and those wonderful emerging young leaders who work here at the museum too. Now, when we decided to restore the Long Gallery, the nation's first museum gallery, originally constructed in 1850, now known as the Westpac Long Gallery due to their magnificent support, it was appropriate to feature the museum's treasures in there. And so, of course, we looked at our collection first up. We have now, based on a new count, over 21 million objects and specimens in the collection. It's the uh, largest collection in the Southern Hemisphere and it's, I think, ranked 35th in the world. But we are the fifth oldest natural history and science museum. Uh, of course, our collections now are the scientific specimens we hold and also the incredible cultural collections that we hold here. So in way, one way or another, those objects or specimens that are included in the treasures have reflect who we are as Australians. And then we started thinking, well, what about the people whose courage, whose audacity, ingenuity and fearlessness have inspired us and forged modern Australia? On this list of our 100 people who've shaped Australia, you'll find more Indigenous people than you would normally find on a list like this. 
And certainly, you'll find many more women than you would normally find on a list like this. That's not by accident. It's great being in charge. Um, now, our committee who decided on those 100 people had some very interesting debates about who should be on the list. And as it says in the introduction by ANU history professor Patty O'Brien, quote, some of the people will seem very familiar, while for others you will know their achievements or benefit from them, but perhaps not know their names. There are athletes, politicians, writers and performers, doctors and explorers, entrepreneurs, media moguls, aviators, agriculturalists, activists and architects. There are researchers who have transformed the lives of millions by their medical discoveries, as well as novelists, poets, painters, photographers, an outlaw and even a saint. Now we decided to have this lecture series to hear firsthand from some of those people featured in the gallery. And I think it's very appropriate that we're kicking off today with the wonderful Ita Buttrose, a woman who has certainly helped shape my Australia growing up. I want to thank Ida for making the time to join us today and also, as I mentioned, Ross for bringing the idea to us. And thank you again to all of you. So we're going, I'm going to introduce Ida now and then I'm going to be in conversation with her. And when that's done, we're going to open it up to the floor so that you can have the opportunity to have a, your own conversation with Ida and ask some questions. So now to Ida. Ida Buttrose has had a long and distinguished media career, starting as a 15-year-old copy girl on the Australian Women's Weekly and becoming its editor when she was just 33. She was the first woman to ever edit a major metropolitan newspaper in Australia as editor-in-chief of the Daily and Sunday Telegraphs. She was also the first female director of News Limited. She later became editor-in-chief of the Sun-Herald. Ida was inducted into the Media Hall of Fame last year. In 2011, her early career was the subject of the highly acclaimed ABC miniseries Paper Giants, The Birth of Cleo. Don't we all remember that? She was Cleo's founding editor. Ida recently completed five years as co-host of Studio 10 on Network 10, and she's recently joined the Nine Network as well, so we'll be seeing even more of her, I hope. In 2013, Ida Bartos was named Australian of the Year. In 2014, Sydney's Macquarie University conferred an honorary Doctor of Letters on Ida in recognition of her contribution to the arts. And in 2015, the University of Wollongong conferred an honorary Doctor of Letters for her contribution to mental health and ageing. So ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honour to ask Ida Buttrose to join me up here in conversation today. Please welcome Ida. Thank you. I know you started work as a copy girl at age 15, but just going back a bit before that, when did you realise that you had this uh, level of curiousness as a young woman, a young girl? Oh, I suppose it was always with me, but certainly by the time I was 11, I, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew exactly what I wanted. I knew I wanted to be a journalist, and that was my sole goal. Why was that? 
I liked writing, I think. I liked writing. Um, and of course I followed in my father's footsteps. He was a journalist, he was an editor, he was an author. And I used to think my parents' friends were absolutely fascinating. They seemed to be people who knew how to enjoy life. They were interested in everything. They had opinions. And I, I guess I started reading newspapers when I was around about that age. And I've been reading the newspapers ever since. You know, I, I, just, I just love it. Do you read them online now or in the hard print? Do you still like I read them online when I read them on newsprint. I think online is fine, but you don't get all the, all the material that you get when you get, have them in print. So I, I split between the two. Depends what I'm doing. You know, if I've got to travel, I tend to look at it online. But invariably, you'll find a, an old-fashioned newsprint copy tucked under my arm. I really enjoy reading them. There's something about the texture, isn't there, and the quality. Of There's something about the ink. Um, certainly with magazines, the ink. I do think the ink is better than Chanel Number no. 5. <laughs> I really do. Maybe that's an investment you could go into. So, you had quite a stable early family life at that time. And you grew up in Sydney? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I grew up in... Um, I was born in Sydney, and then towards the end of the Second World War, uh, my father, who'd been a war correspondent with the Sydney Morning Herald, he didn't meet me until I was six months old because he was reporting on the, the war in Java up in Indonesia. And, um, and just towards the end of the war, Dad was seconded and went overseas to work for the government, the News and Information Bureau in California. And Mum followed with, I only had two brothers then, we all followed in a ship. The, the Pacific War was still raging, non-stop. We sailed across to America. And then when the war did finally end, Dad worked in New York for a media mogul called Ezra Norton. And, and that's where I started my schooling. So six years of my life was spent in America and then we came back to Australia because mum and dad wanted us to grow up, wanted us children to grow up here in Australia. Do you remember much about those early days in the United oh, States? Oh, bits and pieces. You know, I can, remember, I can remember the Easter parade. I can remember some of the stores. Um, I can remember the snow. I can remember a bit of school. Yeah, bits and pieces. Did that have a, a lasting influence on you? That well, when I was about, um, when I was growing up and I was married and I was thinking, when we were going to America, I did get a call from the American consulate wanting to know, because I'd lived there for six years, apparently I could have been an American citizen. Did I, did I want to take out American citizenship papers? And being young, I said, I was about 21 or something, I said, no, why would I want to do that? I'm Australian. <laughs> <laughs> Jump forward a few years then to when you became that copy girl on the Daily Telegraph. Was it the Telegraph or the Weekly? The Women's Weekly. The Women's Weekly first. And then, of course, your meteoric rise onto being the editor-in-chief of the Daily Telegraph and the Sunday Telegraph. Like anybody who achieves, it's not always smooth sailing. There's ups and downs along and the way. At the same time this was happening to you, there was a zeitgeist happening around the world. The role of women was changing post-World War II, obviously. Well, it certainly changed during the war when women went out to work for the first time because the guys were away fighting, you know, and they enjoyed, they enjoyed earning money. But at the time you started at the Weekly, there weren't too many women leading organisations. No, but there was at the Women's Weekly, and, and yeah. that, that was the great thing. It, it was, it was run, run by women. The, the editor that was there when I joined was a wonderful woman called Esme Fenston, and she was the editor for 22 years. And, and Kerry Packer told me once, 
that it never occurred to him to think that women weren't capable and talented because he had grown up seeing women run the Women's Weekly and it was Women's Weekly which Sir Frank started during the Great Depression. It was the Women's Weekly that created the Pack of Fortune. They, they became wealthy because of the Women's Weekly. So it was a great company as a woman to work for because we were, we were encouraged to aim for the top because that's where we belonged as far as they were concerned. So in those times, all right, so you had women role models within the media, but what about outside the media to um, some of the feminists of the time, Gloria Steinem or... Um, Gloria Steinem, well, it was fine as long as you stayed in the women's, on the women's pages. That's where that you were safe, you know, the women's magazines. It was when you ventured to go outside into newspapers, which would, to, after a job traditionally done by men, that you, you, saw, you, became, you found opposition. But Gloria Steinem, I discovered when I was running Clio, so that's, we, that's the 70s. And it was Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan, and there was a whole, there was a, there was a heap Jermaine of them. Greer was Jermaine Greer yes, Well, Jermaine Greer came to, she came to town and she was speaking at a little Italian restaurant in George Street. And so many of us turned up, they moved all the tables and chairs out. So we were sitting on the floor, you know, and there were wine, there were bottles of wine around the room if you want to have a drink. And Jermaine spoke and we all cheered. This was really great stuff. And some woman got so excited, she grabbed the wine bottle and slurped the red wine. And that was so daring. We all clapped again because <laughs> it, wasn't, it was something women just didn't do. It was so wonderful. It was a wonderful time. It was wonderful because because you started to explore and you started to ask questions and you really started to question where you were in your life and what you wanted out of your life. Um, I, I was, by the time I got to Cleo, I was married. So I was married and I certainly didn't, I certainly wanted to be married and I certainly wanted to have children. But, but I, I also wanted to be something, you know, I wanted to do more with my life. And I, I think um, it wasn't until I was around about until, until I was starting clear that you, know, you, you realise that you can go a lot further than you thought when you started. Because when I started, I never envisaged the type of career I've had. So did you have goals back then? In your when career? I first started? N no, not really. I just wanted to be a journalist and write and that was fine. But by the time I'd made my way to Clio, certainly by the time I accepted the role at Clio, I had really determined that what I did want to be was editor of the Women's Weekly. That was always my goal. Because most of the people who worked on the magazine, the women were friends of my parents. Um, and, I, and I knew a lot of them, uh, respectfully. You know, Mrs. Shelton Smith. I mean, none of this first name nonsense. But, but um, and they were held up as, you know, deities almost, women to emulate. And I learned a lot from them, and I, I, I hope I did emulate some of them, because they were fantastic. Well, I can't call you Miss Buttrose, because you are one of those few people in society who is just known by her first name. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, most, that's fine, and I, and I accept that. But in the beginning, in the beginning I was Miss Buttrose. You're, I actually <laughs> <laughs> Now, I recently read Tina Brown's Vanity Fair Diaries. So mm -hmm. I don't know if you've read that yet? No, I haven't, but I'd be good to take on your I've got it. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I couldn't help as I was reading it, drawing parallels between you and uh, Tina Brown. She, of course, was very young when she went to work for Cy Newhouse, the powerful media mogul in New York who owned Condé Nast. 
and she had to navigate his peccadilloes. Uh, sometimes, you know, his temper, sometimes his strategies, which were never clear. And she describes every different meeting she went to with him as being one where she wasn't quite sure how it was going to end. Um, and, of course, that was the world that you went into. Well, um, we, wouldn't be, we wouldn't be in journalism, we wouldn't be in this type of business if we weren't temperamental people, if we weren't creative people. You know, we actually feel stimulated by some of the emotions that we evoke in the things that we write and say, but also in the, in the business in which we work. I mean, it is a quite emotional business sometimes, reporting. And you wouldn't expect the business to be run by calm, boring people. It's just not that way. I mean, sure, you, you know, some people are volatile, but that's part and parcel of why we do what we do. And certainly, certainly, I never saw Sir Frank lose his block. I've, I've, but I've read all the reports, but he was very respectful to women. He was very old school and he was very respectful to women all the time. Very courteous, very polite. Kerry Packer was always almost pretty courteous in, in our presence, but he, he did, he, and certainly he had a short fuse. We were all aware of that. And you just steered clear. And we used to ring each other up and say, He's back, and we, I've just seen him, and he's really not happy. And we'd all, we'd all sort of, sort of, all the five key executives in the company would try and keep out of his way until he, because if he, he didn't sleep very well, so he used to take mogadons, and then he, which was sleeping, really hefty sleeping pills, and then he'd come to work and tell us that the mogadons hadn't worked. That was really a terrible <laughs> sign, because you knew you were going to have a really awful day, whether he had a mogadon hangover. He didn't drink. He didn't drink or any of those sorts of things, but God, he liked his mogadons. But he really backed you with Cleo, didn't he? Uh, well, so Frank gave me the gig, yeah. um, and then he couldn't really, didn't really understand how women were changing. He didn't really understand the progressive woman that we said Cleo was for. So he turned the project over to Kerry, thinking he could handle this new emerging woman and this new reader that we, the new marketplace, the female marketplace was changing. And, you know, we had to be across it if we were going to continue to succeed as successful publishers. So he gave it to Kerry. And as it turned out, it was Kerry's first big success. I remember being in high school when the first issue of Cleo came out and we all went and bought our copies to see the centrefold. <laughs> Jack, Jack Thompson. It wasn't, easy getting, it wasn't easy finding anyone to be the centrefold in the first instance. I mean... Australian men are full of bravado, but when you put them on the spot, they run a mile. They sort of come up to me at parties and say, hey, I I'd like to be a centrefold. And I say, yeah, fine. What's your number? <laughs> I can never get the number. <laughs> anyway, we thought we were never going to get the centrefold. And finally, someone, one of, the, one of the youngest girls, Julie Clark, who ended up marrying Richard Neville. And it was Julie who suggested, well, why don't we try Jack Thompson? And so we tried Jack, and to our delight, he said yes. So the, the, the day dawned for the photograph, which was to have been on Bondi Beach. And the art director and the photographer go down to the beach to meet Jack, and he doesn't front. And we're very close to deadline. You know, we, this, there's no time for delay. And the boys knew that they'd be in terrible strife, that I would kill them if they came back without a centrefold. So they go around to Jack's place. He was living in Paddington. And he'd, he'd been out the night before and he hadn't got up, he had a hangover, he was in bed. <laughs> so they had to get him out of bed 
and he was in no fit state to travel and definitely in no fit state to go to Bondi Beach. And so Andrew, thinking, oh my God, what am I going to do? He goes to some art shop and finds a book of paintings and he, there he finds one of Titian's paintings of Venus lying on the lounge. And so they never disturbed Jack, they just put him on the lounge. <laughs> and that's, that's how centerfold history was made. <laughs> and we weren't, going to have, we weren't going to have more than one. And then, so that we're, doing, we're planning the second issue. And, and Kerry comes breezing into the office and says, oh, what are you doing? And I said, oh, we're planning the next issue of a story conference. And he said, um, who's the next centerfold? We all went, hmm? We said, well, we're not having, oh no, you've got to keep it going, he said. Everyone loves it, you've got to keep going. So that's how the centerfold began and that's how it continued. <laughs> <laughs> so, while there might have been women working and editing a magazine like Cleo and the Women's Weekly, the media industry, though, was still male-dominated. Mm. The advertising side of it was pretty male-dominated as well. Do you have any recollections that have stayed with you about how that might have impacted you at the time as you were asserting your authority as the editor of Cleo? Well, I grew up with three brothers. My parents had another one. Uh, I grew up with three brothers. and. To a man, they used to say that I owe any success I have to them. <laughs> that, they, that they taught me how to be competitive, they taught me how to speak bloke, and they taught me how to understand the workings of the male mind. I'm not sure that's possible, but never mind. Um, but certainly they taught me to be competitive. I think when you grow up with boys, um, you have a different attitude towards men. I, I think you feel more comfortable. You certainly understand their humour. And I did, it was only, as I said, it was only when I put my hand up for jobs traditionally done by men that I realised that maybe I wasn't welcome. And, and, you know, I don't think that impacted on me at all. I just thought, obstacle. I'll have to find a way around this. Because, you know, I had no intention of not going on. And I have never thought that gender should stop any of us, whether, whether you're a male or a female, uh, achieving whatever your, your dreams are. And you, you're entitled to have a go. Were they paying you equitably in those days? Oh, it's very well paid. No doubt about it. That, so there was no... I don't know what the men earned and we never talked about it. Right. But I was, I was quite happy with what I earned. And, but when I had my son, when I had my second child, our first child was born in London. When I had my, our second child, uh, the Packers gave me um, a Karatani nurse. And when, the, when, my child, when my son didn't need that anymore, they gave me a live-in housekeeper. And that was a pretty good package. Yeah. I'm certainly not complaining. I'm not complaining. And they gave me a car and they gave me a driver because I didn't know how to drive. I didn't learn to drive until I was 40. Don't ask me why. I have no idea. <laughs> but, you know, if you're going to give me a car and a driver, I'm probably not going to learn to drive. But, um, <laughs> I had a very good package. I was certainly very happy. So you were obviously working very hard, even though you were given this level of support. Mm. And it did put a strain on your family um, through those years, didn't it? You mean my marriage failed? Yes. Well, lots of marriages fail. They're not necessarily because a woman works. No. So, you know, it takes two to tango and two to break it up. <laughs> So by this time, your star had risen so much to the extent where you were just known as Aisha. 
how did that play with you? Because there's a level of fame that goes with that that maybe professionally you weren't. I used to think I was anonymous and I'd put a scarf on my head and I'd wear sunnies and I'd go out and then I'd open my mouth and they'd say, hello, Ita. <laughs> <laughs> you think, oh, why do I bother? But um, look, in the beginning, you don't realise what's happening and then, then there's a point where you realise that you've lost your anonymity and, and you lose it forever, really. And sometimes when I go overseas and nobody says hello to me, it feels really odd. Yeah. Um, but if you were going to be well, I think if you're going to be well known, Australia's a really nice country in which to be well known because people are very friendly and they don't intrude and they can see if you're having an outing with your kids or something like that. They don't, they don't say anything. They don't come in and say, say something. You know, they, they respect your privacy to a certain degree. Um, I, I haven't, I don't think I've really found it difficult to live with. My friends are really weird because sometimes when I'm walking down the street, I don't notice anymore if people turn and look because, because you have to get on with your life. But my friends say, didn't you notice that person looking at you? And I, I say honestly, no, I, I didn't. I didn't notice. So other people notice. Yeah. But Australians have always made me feel very special. So I feel quite comfortable. So when Jimmy Barnes and Cold Chisel released their iconic song, Ida told me so, um, did, did you know that was going to happen? Didn't have a clue. Did not have a clue. They didn't, uh, they didn't let it out. They just released the song on their album East and it hit the airwaves. And I mean, my children thought it was fantastic. Yeah. Much better than anything else I would have ever done. And, and Jimmy told me, I interviewed Jimmy when he wrote his book just recently, Working Class Boy. And, and he said, you know, we, we were talking about it. And I'd learned a little bit prior to that that they used to watch me presenting the Women's Weekly's commercials every night on television, uh, every week on television. And we had a very big buy. You know, we had nine, seven, ten. We, we really spent a lot of money promoting the magazine. And the boys used to watch me. And they used to watch, and so they, they got, they, they were inspired, Don Woods was inspired to write the song from watching me present the Women's Weekly's commercials. And I always thought it was amazing that, you know, an editor flogging a magazine, you know, this week in the weekly, cupcakes, children's birthday cake, whatever the hell I was promoting, and that inspired them to write this song. I thought it was amazing. Well, you were in our living rooms every night. As well, I think, I think they say that in the song. Yeah. It's, Jimmy also suggested that they were more interested in what else I had to offer. <laughs> he wouldn't be gay Oh, yes, he was gay enough. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1981, you became editor-in-chief mm. of the Daily Telegraph and the Sunday Telegraph. You went from one major media Australian family to another, to the Murdoch family and to working for Rupert Murdoch. What was that transition like? It was huge. It was huge because you went from a company where women were encouraged um, to one where... <laughs> We were regarded as the enemy. <laughs> so it was quite a big culture shock. But it's something, if, if we're talking about shaping the nation, just to go back to the, what, what, what it gives you being, when you run magazines like Cleo and the Women's Weekly, and the papers, I'll get to them in a minute, but with the Women's Weekly, one of the things I did there that I always thought was 
one of the better things I ever did was do something called Voice of the Australian Woman because I was very concerned that laws were made in Australia with no, no input from women. There were no women in the House of Representatives, for instance, when I started Clio in 72. You know, so we were underrepresented in every upper echelon of decision making in this country. And I thought it was time we asked women what they thought about things. And so I, I did this huge survey, lots of questions. We got about 30,000 responses and 10,000 people wrote letters back, dear Ida telling us their point of view. And it was a really significant piece of research because it showed you what women were thinking about all sorts of issues, about issues that we talk today, about rape and incest and, and sexual abuse, which we were never talked about back then, and conscription and you know, traveling and ambition and religion, all sorts of things. And, and you can continue that on. So when you go to something like News Limited, and I, was my, I used to write a column in all of Rupert's Sunday newspapers across Australia, which gives you about four million readers every week, you're able then to put things out there for people to think about. And one of the things I did there was I was very concerned that we had no idea about Australians' nutrition, about our eating habits. We knew nothing about what we were doing to ourselves in relationship to food and our bodies. And so I started a campaign in the papers about... Um, we needed to know, it was time we did a survey. The last time we'd done a survey in this country was during the war. And so here we were in, in the 1980s and we still didn't know. There was a lovely guy who was the health minister then, Jim Carlton, and he was a federal health minister. And, um, and he, he, I bumped into him somewhere and he said, Ida, he said, for God's sake, stop writing about that diet nutrition survey you want. I go to Sydney and there you are. I go to Perth and there it is. He said, you're haunting me. We'll do it. We'll do it. And they did it. Now, I mean, that's, that's some of the things you can do. I mean, that's a good move. And that's, that's some of the good things you can do when you're running big publishing ventures like I've been able to run. So, so when you have that, when you have that um, ability to do that, it's something you have to handle with great responsibility. You have to be, you have to be really aware of what you have at your fingertips, and you have to use it wisely. Do you think today's editors are as aware? Some. Uh, some. I, th I don't think this... I th I, with respect, you know, in a profession that I absolutely love, I don't think the standards are as good as they could be. Uh, I certainly think the women's media is not as, as good as it once was. It's, um, it used to be highly respected. It used to be... It used to be, it used to run stories that were true and accurate, and, and now it doesn't. It's really let itself down. I see the, news, the newspapers are really trying. I think the Herald, which, which dipped and then has come back again and it's now been going into the Nine Network, but I could see evidence of really people trying the Herald. I think this, I find stories in there now that I don't find in other newspapers. I sort of think, what's the Herald got? And I think, no, that's not in any other newspaper. That's a really interesting read. So I think that's, and that's the challenge, I think, that we have, that if we want newspapers to survive, we've got to put stories in there that you're not going to find anywhere else. You're not going to get them on television first, and you're not going to get them on radio first. You're going to have to go to the print and find it. That's how you, that's how you survive in this business with all these changes that are going on. Do you have a favourite online site that you go to for news? New York Times, as a rule. Um, yeah. Well, there's an example of a 
a newspaper along with the Washington Post that because of the Trump situation has experienced a huge boost in circulation over the last couple of years. Well, there is no doubt the American media is strongly biased against Trump yeah. and, and we can all have very strong views about Trump and we, we probably all do. But at the end of the day, if you're a newspaper, you're supposed to be without bias. You're supposed to just print the facts. You know, and sometimes, sometimes if, you, if you look at what is going on in America, and I'm not, I'm not an economist, but you can see that there are huge improvements going on in America in terms of employment, the stock market, you know, the confidence. So on the one hand, while we look at some things that Trump do and think, oh my God, on the other, you have to look and think, well, some of those things are positive. And I think the reporting has to reflect that. So was there ever a time, say, when you were working for Rupert Murdoch that you took, you were on Mahogany Row, I'm assuming? Yes, Mahogany Row is what they called the wing where executives sat. And were you ever called in and uh, reprimanded for a stance that you'd taken? Only when I upset Channel 10 once. <laughs> An advertiser? No, Channel 10 was, uh, was in the Murdoch group then. And they had, um, oh God, MASH. They had MASH. And um, the, the, the TV series about the army and uh, in, the Americans in Korea. Vietnam? Korea. Where were Vietnam. And, um, and they were getting to the, some umpteenth episode and, the, and we ran a great big piece on it in the, in the, in the Daily Telegraph to promote the series. And the 10 people felt that we'd given too much away. So they whinged to Rupert and I got naughty, naughty. And you just think, oh well, that's it. But that's all right. That's, all, that's the way it is. So what I'm um, hearing from you and what I've seen is this resilience that you've had through your career. I mean, you know, dealing with the likes of Kerry Packer and Rupert Murdoch and Sir Frank and other influential people in society who you're doing business with, you need a certain amount of resilience internally, don't you? Where, how do you foster that? Or was it always just there? I think it's always been in me, somehow. I think it's always been in me. But it, but it goes back to my belief that I'm entitled to do what I want to do. You know, I'm entitled to have this career that I wanted. Um, and I'm prepared to fight for what I believe in and I'm prepared to argue with, with, with Sir Frank or with, with Kerry or with Rupert if I think their point of view is incorrect and I think what, or where I'm going is right. And, and usually if you argue with, uh, with confidence and, you know, sensibly, you can sometimes persuade them to see your point of view and you go on doing what you've got to do. But when you work for those big organisations, it's not my organisation, it's theirs. And, and you have to understand that. And sometimes the boss will overrule you. Now, you, if you work for a big corporation, sometimes you have to accept that. So somewhere in your DNA, if there is a bit of our DNA strand that maybe lives around that, did that ever entice you to think about politics as a career? Ita for PM? Well, they, not such they, a bad idea. I was, uh, I was asked many times I was asked several times to go into politics. The first time was I was still a very young mother um, and, and I said, do you guys pay, provide mortgages? And they said, no. Yeah. And you'd have to move suburbs and change children's schools. And I thought, no, it's not for me. And then I got more offers to go. And then I thought, look, 
the camera looks great and and it would be wonderful but I didn't really have children to to leave them and 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 go to Canberra you know I, I my children mean the world to me and I wasn't going to leave them and that that's what I would have had to have done you know I can see I can see how politicians lead their lives and that's fine that's their choice but it wasn't my choice and then you know I don't think it's my calling you know yeah. I think my calling is what I do and, and I like the freedom that that what I do gives me. I don't have to compromise my values and my principles, and it seems to me that a lot of politicians do. Well, that brings me to now. I mean, you've been won so many awards and accolades for what you've done through your career, but in recent years, you've taken on a number of causes that you feel quite passionate about, uh, which have propelled you in a whole new direction as well. I mean, maybe. Uh, yeah, I've okay. always had causes, actually. Um, but I suppose the ones I have now are perhaps a little more prominent. But, but my mother had my brothers and I doing good deeds from a very early age. I used to sell legacy buttons in Elizabeth Street, and I'd hold a coin collecting device at the Bondi Pavilion for the Royal <laughs> Prince Alfred Hospital, and I manned the fate at the the fate stalls at the cerebral at the spastic center which is now the cerebral palsy association it's the way i was brought up and I, i've always had causes somewhere along the way that i've been helping but in more recent times most of mine have been to do with health and i suppose it's the biggest health one started in in the 80s when i became chair of the national advisory committee on aids um, just when the virus first came when we we didn't know much about it i, I didn't know i did i hardly knew a thing about it. HIV and AIDS when I started. And neither did anyone else in the government. I mean, Neil Blewett was in the health minister. He said to me, he found a note in his filing cabinet that said, oh yes, there's a virus called um, AIDS. They called it AIDS then. Virus called AIDS and it seems to affect gay men. And that's what he found in his file. Well, as we know, it was a lot more than that. And so that was the beginning of, you know, high profile, I suppose, in health. Not that I expected a high profile because I didn't really realise where that was going to take us all. But when the, the, the Neil Blewett rang me late one night when I was editor-in-chief of the Telegraphs and, you know, I thought he was ringing about a story or something he wanted in the paper or something we'd done that he was unhappy about. Um, but no, it wasn't. They were looking for someone to chair this committee that Australians would trust because there were so many important messages to get out there about how you did and didn't get AIDS. And then, then it just sort of went on, you know, my, my, my daughter had a very rare form of juvenile arthritis and the arthritis people got to hear about it and they go, Clunk! <laughs> you know, and they got me and so I started doing work for Arthritis Australia. It was then called the Rheumatism, Rheumatism Council and I think Eric Willis, who was a politician in this state, was then involved in that. And then I'd done a lot of breast cancer work, um, again because we wanted to get women checking their breasts. And some, when I was running the weekly, um, one of the radiographers came to me and said, look, they're having a lot of difficulty in getting um, Italian women in particular out in Liverpool to go and, and get their breast check, for breast cancer. And he, he said, can you help? And I said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I said, I'll run one page in English about it all, and then on the other the next page, I'll do it in Italian. And I said, we'll try that. Because a lot of migrant women read the weekly to find out about the Australian way of life. So that's why he came to me. And, um, and it worked a treat. And 
that. But then I got a letter of complaint from the guy who'd advertised toys opposite the Italian page. And he wanted, he wanted to make good, he wanted a free ad to replace this. And so I wrote back to him and I said, look, okay, uh, do you think that uh, Italian parents don't buy their children toys? But look, I said, I'll give you a make good, but I will be publishing your letter. <laughs> that was the end of that. That was the end of that. So, you know, it, it's, it's interesting how it goes. But in later times, you know, dementia, clearly Alzheimer's Australia has taken up a lot of my time. It's now Dementia Australia. That's because Dad had vascular dementia. And I think when you've had these, had these health conditions in your family, he also had macular degeneration, which is why I work for the Macular Disease Foundation. When you, you, you understand them so well, you understand them better, you know, yes. and you can understand how people feel. And, and dementia is a huge health problem in Australia. It's, it's got to be one of the biggest public health problems of the 21st century. But lending your celebrity to those causes is incredibly important, and I know you do that quite judiciously. We see sometimes celebrities lend their name to charities and causes that doesn't quite ring true. So it's very important, isn't it, that you have that passion or that experience to want to get behind something? Well, it's such a, there's such huge health issues that I feel if you, can, if you can help get some of the very important messages across, that, that that's a good thing. And, and because, because my business is communication, um, it, it helps, and it certainly helped when I was Australian of the Year to talk about dementia because every time I was asked to make a speech, and I think I made at least a hundred that year, I mentioned dementia. It didn't matter where I went, I managed to get that in there. And you know, it does help raise awareness. And I don't want a health job out of it. I don't want a promotion out of it. I don't want anything out of it. I just want to be able to help people who are affected by the disease and whose family worry about them all the time. So before we go to questions from the audience, being Australian of the Year does carry with it a, a great opportunity, doesn't it, mm. to talk to people right across Australia. It's odd because not many countries have an, you know, an award equivalent. What did it mean to you when you found out you were going to be Australian? Well, it's, a, it's, it's very humbling. It's, um, you know, you're, you're very conscious it's a great honour. You're very conscious of the fact that you're following in the footsteps of many distinguished Australians. I, I really think it's one of the greatest honours your country can pay you. And, um, and I wish my parents had been alive. Yeah. So, I could have so they could have seen it. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Well, we're, we're thrilled and delighted that you were Australian of the Year. And in fact, you still are. And so many respects, I think it's an honour that you carry with you forever. So with that, we're going to open it up to questions. I know we've got some microphones there. Are you happy to take a few questions? Sure. On? Terrific. Thank you. Who'd like to ask Ida a question? Yes. There you are. Hello, Ida. Hello. My name is Jenny. Um, thank you. That was fascinating and I work with children, I do a mentor project and I work with children on re what are your dreams, how, do you, how are you going to go about achieving them and help them to hold on to those dreams and keep following through on them. So my question is what advice, what would be your maybe your top tip you would give to youth, say teenagers, on 
keeping in touch with that dream. Top six tips for teenagers. No, just your, your top tip that you would give. What would be the one thing you think that would be the main thing? Nobody dreams your dream. Nobody. It's yours. Nobody dreams it. And all too often we allow people to talk us out of our dreams. And yet deep inside of us we know that there is something we want to do. And it's much better to have tried to do it. It doesn't matter if it doesn't even work. But if you try and do it, it's fine. And Another it, question? Come on, I know they're burning, yes. Oh, 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 sorry. <laughs> <coughs> Pardon me, hello. Hi. You've worked so broadly in so many different areas, um, always as a communicator. What uh, would you say, if you can think of something off the top of your head that you're most proud of in your work? In my work? Oh gosh, I don't know, I don't know. There have been so many, there have been so many things. Look, the, 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 the biggest and proudest professional moment in my life had to be running the weekly. You know, that was, that was what I wanted. And, you know, a lot of you would remember when it was a weekly, and some of you probably don't remember when it was a weekly. You probably think of it as a monthly. But when it was a weekly, it was really without, there was nothing that could touch it. It was one of the mightiest magazines of them all. And you know, it sold around about, on average, it sold about 860,000 copies a week. Sometimes it sold more than 900,000. Now it's selling around 200,000 a month. It went into one in four homes. Nobody ever said no to it. It was, it was fantastic. It was a privilege to edit it. And I think most of us who, kept, who edited it, I'm sure the current batch do too, but when it was a weekly and you could see what you could do with it, governments would come to us and ask us to, um, translate the pension into people talk. The, pension, the new pension advice, because that's how they did it then. We, we, were one of the, we were the first magazine to write about the Heart Foundation, to write about health, um, all of these issues that were very important to people, and we, we put it into people talk. We took the bureaucratic mumbo jumbo out, and we made people, we did it so people could understand what was happening. And it was just, it was a fun thing to be able to edit the weekly. You know, it, you could change the cover You've no idea what you could do with it production-wise. You'd work six weeks ahead on six issues at a time. You could change the cover three times in the run. So you go, you go to the smaller states, you could bring it back for Victoria, change the cover if you wanted. If there was a news story, bring, you could bring it back to New South Wales and change the cover again. You change the black and white pages six times for, for the various states. And it, you could ask this magazine all sorts of things and you could do it. And it was such a fantastic thing to be able to do. I, I loved it. I loved it too. Mm. <laughs> Hi, you, um, you spoke about um, important surveys that in your career that you launched. Thinking now, what would be a survey you would like to do now? I'd probably like to go back and ask women what they're thinking about certain things now. I think it's time to, to I think it's always time to review it. We ran, a, we ran something similar to Voice of the Australian Women in ITA, only we did it from, more, from the perspective of, of older women. And I think it would be rather interesting to do that now because when I look at some of the issues that we have, it concerns me the high mental health rate that we have now in our country. Um, I chair a thing called the Australian Mental Health Prize and that's set up to try and find people who are working in the mental health field doing remarkable work. And it's, it's done with the establishment of the um, University of New South Wales Psychiatry Department. And, which, and I, I'd like to get my head across that because I want to know why more women than men 
get mental health issues. Um, and it's still a high rate for men. I want to know why one in seven children in this country have mental health problems. So is it something new? Is it something, have we gone wrong somewhere? Is there something missing? So I'd like to explore that. I think there are a lot of issues like that. I'd like to know why we seem to have more children on the autism spectrum. Why is that? And I'm really, I'm really dying to know why so many kids can't eat peanut butter. I mean, my mother would have been out of her mind if she couldn't have given us peanut butter sandwiches when I was a kid. We could only ever have other kids over if they would have peanut butter sandwiches. That's all you were going to get. And now you wouldn't dream of giving anyone peanut butter. So there are lots of issues. I'd like to know what women think about the state of the world at this point in time. Where do, where do they think our priorities ought to be? So I, I, I would be looking at that. I'd, I'd like to hear the female point of view because while we are it, we are a better place than we once were, there's still room for improvement and I think our voice still needs to be heard. I'm down here. Oh, what was lady next door? Lady, we'll take the um, Is it working? Yes. My daughter was subscribing to Clio and, um, and then she got the last one when it was discontinued. And I was just wondering how you felt about Clio stopping publication personally. Well, you know, magazines do stop. That, that's the sad fact of life. Um, I remember reading somebody saying, oh, Cleo had really lost its place. But you see, I, I don't accept that. What I think happened to Cleo was that it, it didn't really understand the marketplace anymore. So, so the marketplace had changed. And there are lots of ways younger people get their information. And I accept that. But there are lots of issues affecting younger women that are not covered, that are not covered online, that are not covered by social media, that you could do in a magazine like Clio. So you'd have to bring it back and revamp it. And in the same way that we looked at what did we think women wanted back in the days when we started it in 72, you'd be looking and saying, okay, what does a younger demographic want in their readership at this point of the 21st century? And if you, if you read the marketplace right, whatever you're selling, it will work. But if you don't understand the marketplace, then things don't work. Another question? Yes. The lady up there in the green. Yeah. yeah. Yes, good afternoon, Ida. Look, I was just actually fascinated to hear when you said how much support services that the Packers gave you regarding you, your career, providing a housekeeper and mm. caritone nurse, etc. Um, a number one, did you find that enabled you to continue your career at the level that you were at? And do you believe it's important or it's one of the things that perhaps women can't advance as well in careers because they do have the family commitments um, that they actually have to do with the job and not have the help um, that the Packers fantastically gave you? Well, I do often say when I'm speaking to corporate women, you know, that they should ask for a nanny package. And I said, I'm sure your company will say we can't do it. But the fact of the matter is companies can do it if they want to keep you there and they want to make the workplace friendly. And I, I suggest to them, you know, give up a bit of your package and opt for the nanny package because at this point of your life, that's going to make it a lot easier. Um, I think you can still work without the nanny package, but the thing is that it's harder. And I think younger parents seem so time-stressed. I mean, aren't we all? But they, they seem so time-stressed because they're so busy making sure their children have every attribute and skill that's going. There's so many extracurricular acti curricular activities that children have, which I think are far too many, but that they don't allow themselves any time to enjoy their parenting or to enjoy their housework. 
We used to have a saying at the weekly, a tidy house is a sign of, of a wasted mind. So, you know, you, you shouldn't really fuss too much about whether the house is tidy or not. It's really having some me time and some special time with your children. But I think, you know, the family-friendly workplaces that we talk about, some of them are family-friendly, but not enough are. There's a lot of lip service still paid to that. Women are still made to feel guilty, and I'm sure men are too, if they take time off to go early, early, leave on time to go home because the kids have to be picked up at day, after daycare or whatever it is. So I, I think it's really too tough, and I think the workplace needs to understand that as long as we employ young men and women, there will be a point in their time when they have to have free time to be with their families. And corporately, we need to be able to address that in the workplace and make it easier for young parents and not as tough as it is for most of them, for many of them. I've just recently gone back to studying journalism. Can um, you hold that microphone closer to your mouth? Oh, sorry. I've just recently gone back to studying journalism, or started studying journalism. And um, one of the things is that we are taught at university to tell truth about ethics, about um, how to write an article well, but it doesn't seem to be happening in our newspapers. And I was wondering what you thought the disconnect might be. To have ethics? Yeah. <laughs> well, there is a journalist's code of ethics that we're meant to observe. Um, and I think a lot of us do try to observe them. Um, I think social media has made general media a little bit sloppy in its approach. And there seems to be a careless disregard the facts. Now, as long as the public accept this, you're going to continue to get it. And the only way the media will ever know is if the public says, look, that's unacceptable. That is unacceptable. I don't like that. I'm not going to buy your paper. I'm not going to buy your magazine. People power have the, is the way you change things if you want to change them. But people have to exercise it. And a lot of time, people are too indifferent, too indifferent to do that. You know? For instance, just a case in point, I, I did become patron of the Jodie Lee Bowel Cancer Foundation last month. Um, and one of, the, one of the things they've asked me to keep raising is that 90% of bowel cancer cases can be successfully treated if caught early. But fewer than 40% are because Australians say they're too busy to take the free test. That is sent to them by the government when they turn 50. Now really, what is the matter with us all? It's a free test. There's no big deal. And yet we're too busy to do it. And so people are dying unnecessarily from bowel cancer, 80, 80 a week, who don't have to. If we don't care, or we don't make the time for things that we don't like or things that we feel could be improved, nothing will change. So if you think a, a newspaper or a magazine is not behaving in an ethical way, it's up to the public to let them know. I won't buy your product. That's, that's, that's the one. That's, there's nothing, there's no sales, if you, you know, and if you don't do any sales, you haven't got a business. I think that's uh, a very good note on which to end today. Uh, Ida, I think we can all take that lesson with us that if we don't do it, nothing will change. Mm. That we've got to make the difference we want to see in our society. And you've been a beacon of that for a very long time and I certainly hope you'll continue doing that on these causes, the health causes you support, but so many other social issues as well. We're so privileged to have had you. Thank you very much. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.